Glad you're here this morning. I'm glad to be here. Uh, glad to start a new series and want to tell you a little story. <clears throat> and I, I remember it like it was yesterday. Uh, every time I think about it, it makes me laugh a little bit. Uh, and uh, maybe it'll make you laugh too. But uh, I, can just, I can see it so freshly in my mind, like it just happened. Uh, I wish I had a picture of it. You know, this is before there was like uh, smartphones, and I, you know, I didn't, uh, I didn't have a, I don't have a picture of it. I wish I could find one and show it to you because you would laugh as hard as I did at the time. I'm, I'm talking about several years ago. This was uh, in the early, early days of HD TV, high definition TV, and man, those were blissful times. You know, we didn't know how bad we had it until HD TV came around, and and um, uh, you know, I can remember walking into like electronic stores just to stare at these new inventions. This high definition picture. I mean, it was so exciting, and uh, and just it, the the picture was so clear. It just blew your mind. You know, people would just be staring. And I mean, now I mean, we got 4K, we got 8K, we got virtual reality, and all that kind of voodoo. And uh, but these were simpler times back then. I mean, we were content with an analog TV signal and with with striking rocks together to make fire. There were simple times back then, but uh, but then. HD came along, and you know, there are some things that you just can't unsee. You, they're just seared into your memory, and this is one of those things. So in the early days, HD was expensive. These TVs, I didn't have one. They were kind of expensive, and, and there really wasn't even much on the way of, of programming. There wasn't a lot of stuff that was being broadcast in HD, but there was football, I mean, there's always football, right? And there was football, and that meant that the, the NFL was broadcast in HD, and that meant that the NFL pregame show was also being broadcast in HD. And, and one Sunday many years ago, my family and I, we went to a local restaurant after church, and we were walking uh, to the, our table, and my wife, she stopped dead in her tracks, and she pointed at the TV. She said, look at that. And I mean, my wife, she loves the Dallas Cowboys, but she could care less about NFL, pregame, anything, you know. So I was kind of like, well, what's going on? And I, I followed her finger, and it took a moment to register exactly what we were seeing. Because there was, you know, what you'd expect, this big fancy news desk, guys with, with blazers and ties talking really seriously about, you know, yards after the catch or whatever, some kind of football information. But there was something really, really wrong. These guys were both wearing makeup. I mean, lots and lots of makeup. Everybody on TV wears makeup, but apparently nobody had told the makeup artists for this particular broadcast that with the new HD TVs, you don't need nearly as much makeup as you did in the past. These two guys were painted up like circus clowns. And uh, I don't think I've laughed so hard in my whole life, you know. Uh, there's just some things you can't unsee, and that was one of those moments. But, uh, but you know, there's other times. There's other times when you want to see more, but you can't. You want to see in in high definition, but you just can't. You want to know for sure that God is at work here, and you're just not that clear. Things aren't that clear. You know, when, when something really difficult happens, the, the loss of a job or, or the loss of a loved one, we all want to know the same thing. Where is God in this part of the process? Or, or when something exciting happens, you have a new opportunity, we all want to know which direction is it that God wants me to go. And this morning, we're going to begin a series that hopefully will help us answer these questions, these kinds of questions. Over the next six weeks, we're starting a series we call Faith in 
blank. And we're going to be studying the book of Esther. And maybe you can turn to it now if you want to. The book of Esther. Maybe you're familiar with the book of Esther or maybe you never heard about it. But, but Esther tells a story that in some ways it's almost too hard to believe. But in some ways, it's all too familiar because the book of Esther, it's famous in part because it never mentions God, not even one time. In fact, early on, some people thought it shouldn't even be in the Bible because of that. But, but even though the book doesn't mention God by name, God is very much a part of the story. Esther is really a book about God. It's a book about following God when you can't see him. And, uh, you know, sometimes, maybe even more often than we'd like to admit, that's where we find ourselves. That's our problem. We want to follow God, but we can't see him. We can't clearly understand what we should do. Should we stay in this position? Should we move to this new opportunity? This one provides uh, safety. This one provides potential for growth. There's risk here. There's protection here. Where, where are we going to go? How do we, how do we know what to choose? Those kinds of things are what we're going to be exploring in our study of Esther. And we're calling the series Faith in Blank. Each week we're going to fill in that blank with a different word. And sometimes the reason we can't see God is because we're too busy trying to manipulate circumstances on our own. We're trying to work out things the way we think they should be worked out rather than really waiting on God's guidance. And so too often we fill in that blank with ourselves, with our own abilities, our own ideas, rather than really filling it in with God. And so each week of this series, we're going to be filling in that blank with something specific that we learn about God from our study of Esther. We're going to be finding out what we really put our faith in. And, and uh, if we want to follow God, even when we can't see him, we need to be able to put our faith in him and not just in things that we can see and manipulate. So I hope you'll be equipped by the series. I hope you'll, you'll commit to be here each week if you can. And I'd love for you to read through uh, the book of Esther over the next several days, several weeks. It's a, a short book. It, it kind of reads like a novel. It's, it should be pretty easy. So, so this morning, I want us to start with just a brief history lesson, emphasis on the, the brief. Uh, and I want us to just give us a, a bit of context for the book of Esther. So first, uh, God has this, this special relationship with Israel, with the people of Israel. And um, he had revealed himself to them in a really unique way. And God loved all the people, but he had a really special relationship with Israel. And this relationship really had a purpose. It was designed to bless Israel so much that all these other people and all these other nations would see that and they'd give up their false gods and go seek these blessings that God was giving Israel. And so, so God's special relationship is designed to bless Israel, but by extension then bless all the other people in the world. And, and see, by the time we get to the book of Esther, really it seems like none of that is happening. Uh, the people of Israel, they've revolted against God time and time and time again to the point that he almost abolished their nation completely. Uh, foreign kings had come and taken over their land and, and uh, killed their kings, had put their people in exile in all these different places all over the, the empires. And now, now none of this came as a surprise to God. And it really, it shouldn't have been a surprise to the people of Israel uh, either because God had told them time and time again. He said, if you put your faith in something else, as something that wasn't God, then he would withdraw those blessings. In fact, way back in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 28, God said this to his people. If they fail to keep their faith in him, he says, then the Lord will scatter you among the nations from one end of the earth to the other. There you'll worship other gods, gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your ancestors have known. Among those nations, you will find no repose, no resting place for the sole of your foot. There, the Lord will give you an anxious mind, eyes weary with longing, a despairing heart. 
You'll live in constant suspense, filled with dread, both night and day, never sure of your life. In the morning, you will say, if only it were evening. And in the evening, if only it were morning, because of the terror that will fill your hearts and the sights that your eyes will see. So because they failed to keep their faith in him, because they filled that blank in with something else, they ended up with anxious minds, weary eyes, longing for a God who would listen to them and who would respond. And that's where many of us find ourselves today. We're strangers in a strange land. We, we want to follow God. We want to be committed to Him. But how do you follow God when you can't see Him? Well, that's why the book of Esther was written. Back uh, to our history lesson, God had allowed foreign kings to come and conquer Israel, conquer His special nation. And the Babylonian Empire, they came and conquered them. They scattered God's people all over the empire from Egypt all the way to modern-day Iran. And the prophet Jeremiah, he told the people when they went into exile, he said, Hey, unpack your bags. Don't think this is temporary. You're going to be here a while until they can learn to put their faith in God and not in other things. So here, a hundred years after that exile, the Babylonians themselves have been conquered by the Persian Empire, and, and that's where Esther begins. These Jews were living in exile far from the land that God had given them, and, and seemingly far from God. In fact, as we said in the book of Esther, it doesn't even mention God one time. It's the only book in the Bible that doesn't mention God. But as we're going to come to see, God is very much a part of the story. He's, he's present in every way, you know, kind of like the world we live in today. We're, we're God's people, we're followers of Christ, many of us, but we live in a world that doesn't necessarily have faith in him, that, that doesn't acknowledge that God has a role in the world. And Esther was written to a people just like that. It was written to answer this question, how do we follow God when we can't see him? Well, just as God has not given up on us, as God continues to show up in our world, he hadn't given up on his people in the Persian Empire either. He might seem to be absent But if we put our faith in him, he'll show himself to be worthy of that faith. So let's pick up the story right at the beginning. Esther chapter 1, verse 1, and you'll see the the text on the screen. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. Uh, Now, uh, depending on which Bible translation you have, you might see a different name here, Ahasuerus. Same person, but one is his name in Hebrew and one is his Persian name. And I'm just going to call him Xerxes because it's easier to say out loud. So, Xerxes, the Xerxes, who ruled over 127 provinces, stretching from India to Cush, that's modern-day Egypt and Ethiopia. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa, modern-day Iran, and in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials, the military leaders of Persia and Media, the, the princes, the nobles of the provinces were all present. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and the glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people, from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen, fastened with cords of white linen, purple material, silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other, and the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions, for the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. 
On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, I imagine so after all this, uh, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, Mahuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zethar, Carcass. You know, if you're looking for like a baby name, a biblical baby name, you just bookmark this page right here, you know what I mean? Uh, he, he commanded his eunuchs to bring before him Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown, in order to display her beauty to the people and the nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious, and he burned with anger. So uh, let's just stop right there for a minute, okay? Now, just like any good story, the author's just setting the scene for us. This is no ordinary kingdom, and and this Xerxes, he's no ordinary king. This whole uh, description is designed to show off his great wealth and and riches and power. He opens up the palace for all these guests for 180 days, and he opens up the bar. Everybody can drink however they want. It's just a big show of his, his riches and his power, and it's interesting. You know, all this drinking actually had a purpose. I mean, in their minds, it had a purpose because the Persians, they thought that being inebriated would actually give them a higher consciousness. That's what they thought. And so the king is using this banquet really as a way to get wisdom. He's really actually working like a big military strategy session here. And, and he's planning what would become uh, a really disastrous invasion of Greece. Have you ever seen the movie 300 or if you know any military history, uh, Maybe you know a little bit about uh, his, his invasion of Greece. That's not a recommendation of the movie 300, by the way. But uh, these Persians, they thought that alcohol would give them like clarity about all these things. So it seems like uh, some things never changed, right? But, uh, but the author, this is going out of his or her way to really describe this lavish banquet. And again, it's all designed to show how powerful, how in control of everything Xerxes is. But it's, it's a little tongue-in-cheek because we find out that Xerxes, he doesn't even have power over his own wife. Uh, towards the end of this seven-day bender, Xerxes wants to show off his wife with his, his drinking buddies slash military strategists, and, and he calls for her. But we find out this king doesn't have as much power and control as he thinks. She refuses to come, and look what he does. Verse 12 says he burns with anger. Well, that's not really much of a response for a guy who seems to have all this power and control. So let's look at the rest of the chapter, starting in verse 13. Since it was customary for the king to consult experts in matters of law and justice, he spoke with the wise men who understood the times and were closest to the king. Karshena, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Meres, Marsena, Mamukan, another good list of names there. Uh, the seven nobles of Persia and Media who had special access to the king and were highest in the kingdom. According to law, what must be done to Queen Vashti, he asked. She has not obeyed the command of King Xerxes that the eunuchs have taken to her. Then Mamukin replied, in the presence of the king and all the nobles, Queen Vashti has done wrong, not only against the king, but also against all the nobles and all the peoples of all the provinces of King Xerxes. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, so they will despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she would not come. This very day, the Persian and Median women of the nobility have heard about the queen's conduct. They'll respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. There will be no end of disrespect and discord. Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree, and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed. That'll come up later. That Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. And also, let the, royal king, let the king give her royal position to someone else who's better than she. Then, when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all his vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands, from the least to the greatest. So their, their solution, since the queen wouldn't obey the first command, is, is to create a new command. That seems like a really good plan, right? 
Uh, and that's what they decided to do. So the king and all his nobles were pleased with this advice. The king did as Mamukin proposed. He sent dispatches to all parts of the kingdom, to each province, its own script, each people in their own language, proclaiming that every man should be ruler over his own household using his native tongue. So, uh, so look again at verse 13. Okay, Xerxes spoke with the wise men who understood the times. That seemed like a pretty good idea. But, but they respond with fear and insecurity and abuse. I mean, you can just imagine these guys, maybe they don't understand as much of the times as they think. I, I mean, I can just imagine these guys sitting around, hey, fellas, if, if these women get hold of the fact that all we do is sit around all day and drink, they might start to lose respect for us. We should probably do something. You know, that's, a, uh, that's how these guys are acting. You know? But understanding the times, that's a good idea. They're right about that part. Understanding how the world works, understanding who's really in control is really what this book is all about. And as we take some principles here and apply them to our own lives, we're going to find out that putting our faith in God and not just in ourselves is key. And, and it's clear, it's going to become even more clear as you work through this book that God is in control. Even though he hasn't been named, he's already orchestrating events. Uh, this first chapter of Esther lays the background for us. This, this powerful king who's not as powerful as he thinks. And uh, this vacant seat where the queen used to sit, just waiting to be filled with someone. Someone of God's choosing. So clearly God is at work with a process and a plan. And these are just the first steps. You know, in every good story, the beginning of the story carries a certain amount of tension, revealing just a, a hint of what's to come. Every story kind of lays out the basic circumstances, but the best stories, those, those basic circumstances are not just happy. They carry a certain amount of stress, a certain amount of tension, revealing what's to come. You know, in, in Romeo and Juliet, you see right at the beginning two families who hate each other. It's just a matter of time before something happens. Or in the movie uh, Remember the Titans, this African-American is hired to replace a beloved football coach in this recently desegregated high school. We don't know what's going to happen, but we know something is going to happen. There's a certain amount of tension there. And, and that's certainly true in this story. This book is called Esther, but we haven't even met her yet. Uh, she's a nobody with no position or no power yet. And so this is the world we're entering into over the next six weeks, a world where God is seemingly absent and yet is clearly in control. You know, kind of like the world we live in right here. And when we can't see God, when we can't explicitly observe Him at work, it's really easy to lose sight of what He's capable of. It's easy to lose sight of how we should follow Him. And in His seeming absence, we tend to fill that void with our own things. We, we, instead of putting our faith in an unseen God, we put our faith in, in something we can see and we can manipulate. So we're calling the series Faith in blank, and this morning we're going to fill in that blank in this way. We want to put our faith in God's process, not in our position. Put our faith in God's process, not in our position. See, each of these characters have a position. For Esther, she's a Jew living in exile with, with no real position at all, but that's going to change soon. God's in process, even though she doesn't realize it yet. For Xerxes, he's got plenty of position, but what good does it get him? All he can do is, is burn with anger and then drink the pain away. Queen Vashti, she has a position, but it's taken away from her, even though she doesn't do anything wrong. So let's not put our faith in our own position that's liable to change, but let's put our faith in God's process. We never know when God could raise you up or, or knock you down, even if you don't do anything wrong. Following God, even when we can't see Him, means we put our faith in God's 
process. Even if we're surprised by what happens, God's not. If all we do is put our faith in our position, then when our position changes, even if we haven't done anything wrong, where are you going to find yourself? This, the house of cards that we built comes tumbling down, and what are we left with? Nothing. We put our faith in God's process, then we're not shaken when things happen. We, we meet challenges instead with anticipation, with excitement about what God wants to do next. So even when our circumstances change, we can still have faith that God is at work. Uh, there's people here who faced sudden loss of a job, uh, sudden health scares, or, or maybe they've been presented with what sounds like a great opportunity to change their life. So when, when these kind of bad things happen or when these kind of good things happen, we want to make sure that our focus is not on our circumstances, not on our position, but our faith is in God and in his process. So what helps us with this? How do we know when we're putting our faith in God's process or when we're only putting our faith in our position? Well, what do we do in this, this nothing time? We want to follow God, but we can't see him. Well, in the, in the nothing time, God gives us something that we can do. And one of the things I think we need to start off with, first of all, we need to ask ourselves, how do we respond when surprises happen? And when our circumstances change, are we angry? Are we bitter? Uh, or instead do we turn to God, looking to Him with some anticipation about what might be next? If, if our only response is, is anger and stress and bitterness, then that's a sign that we're putting our faith only in our own position. And when that changes, we, we grasp for meaning there, we try hard to, to reclaim the status quo, and we work so hard to get back to the way things used to be that we fail to see the thing that God has next for us, the next steps for us. So the first thing we want to ask ourselves is, how do I respond when surprises happen? Are we putting our faith in God's process or just in our own position? And after we've asked ourselves that question, I think there's two things that we can focus on that help us put our faith in God's process and not just in our position. Both these things fall into the category of just staying connected to God. If our connection to God is weak, we're not going to be able to discern what God wants us to do in the process. We won't be able to see past our own position, past the the here and now. We have to have that connection with God that helps us understand how he's at work in the world, that helps us have faith in his process. And, you know, for a person like Esther, the hardest part of living in exile miles away from Israel was being distant from God. You know, in the Old Testament, God inhabited his temple at Jerusalem. If you wanted to see God, you went to Jerusalem, and, and there he was. But when you're in exile, 1,700 miles away from Jerusalem, what do you do? How do you connect to God? Well, one thing that God has given all of us, faithful people of old like Esther and people like us today, is relationships. Having healthy relationships with people who love God, that's one thing God uses to show himself to us. God works through people. And the first thing, that's the first thing God gives us to help us to have faith in his processes, healthy relationships. And so, so part of doing our part to connect to God means we take advantage of healthy relationships. You know, unlike uh, Xerxes, he has to throw his position around and, and make meaningless laws that can't be enforced. Healthy relationships make us uh, the kind of people that people want to be around. They make us uh, people who are connected to God, and they give us the ability to to hear God and have him work in our lives. If we surround ourselves with healthy people who love God and who care about us, we're going to be better people for it. And one of the really benefits to healthy relationships is they give us the ability to see ourselves clearly. They give us perspective. Uh, one of Jesus' most famous teachings, he says, love your neighbor as yourself. And this kind of 
often confusing teaching, but I think what Jesus is getting at is that our natural inclination is to act in the way that we see ourselves. So if we see ourselves as superior to others, that's going to show up in the way that we respond to other people. But if we see ourselves in the proper perspective, then we're going to treat other people with love and with respect. Xerxes, he got so caught up in his own position, he lost sight of the truth. Uh, Queen Vashti, she saw herself properly. She knew she was more than just a piece of eye candy, and so she refused to go along with this demeaning request of Xerxes. And John Maxwell, he says it this way. He says, when you realize that people treat you according to how they see themselves rather than how you really are, you're less likely to be affected by their behavior. Your self-image will reflect who you are, not how you're treated by others. So having healthy relationships gives us a, a perspective about ourselves, and that helps us see ourselves more clearly. Having healthy relationships, which, as Jesus tells us, means having a healthy view of ourselves, that's one way that we can stay connected to God, one way that we can allow God to speak into our lives, just cultivating relationships with people who love God and people who care about us. And there's another benefit to these healthy relationships, and that's just accountability. Accountability helps us to connect to God because it keeps us on track. Uh, not many of us desire, uh, lack the desire to connect to God. That's not really our problem. But, uh, but what we lack is the ability to follow through on that desire. And that's really where accountability comes into play. So a healthy relationship can give us accountability in our relationship with God. They help us stay on track. You know, that's one of the big features of our uh, growth groups here at Trinity. We call it loving accountability. And our growth groups, you know, they're just small groups of people who meet in homes throughout the week. They, they pray for each other. They encourage each other. They grow together. Well, one of the things they do is they, set, uh, they work together to create spiritual goals. And then they help each other uh, achieve those goals. It's loving accountability. And, and healthy relationships, that accountability is so helpful. It allows you to deepen your connection to God. And our growth groups, our healthy relationships, they provide an environment where you can connect to God because they help us have accountability. So healthy relationships, that's one way we connect to God. A second thing that helps us is, uh, is active faith. Okay? God gives us things that we can do to help grow our faith, things that we can do to help stay connected to God. And certainly prayer is one of those things. And we pray, you know, not because God needs to know things from us. God already knows everything. Even if we're, we uh, have uh, something we want to ask God, it's not new information to Him. He already knows everything. But we pray really for our own benefit more than anything else. We pray to connect ourselves to God and to change our own hearts. Uh, uh, David Mathis, he's a pastor, he says it this way. He says, prayer is not finally about getting things from God, but it's about getting God. And prayer, that's one way that we connect to God. That's an active thing we can do to connect ourselves to God. But there's another kind of overlooked practice of active faith, and it's memorizing Scripture. Memorizing Scripture. Now, a lot of us, we even hear those words, or we've memorized Scripture, and we, we're like, what's the point? You know, we've tried it before, uh, work hard to memorize this verse and memorize this passage, but then two months later, it's gone, you know. Uh, but I think about it this way, okay? I think about memorizing Scripture is like the Karate Kid. Okay, if you've seen the movie The Karate Kid, you know, Ralph Macchio goes to the old karate master, Mr. Miyagi, he wants to learn karate. And he starts off, he's washing cars, right? Wax on, wax off, over and over again, he's waxing on and he's waxing off. Finally, he gets fed up. He's like, hey, when am I going to learn something useful? Well, lo and behold, through all this work, he learned, 
wax on, wax off. He had the moves to be a karate champion. He just didn't realize it. Well, you know, scripture memory is a little bit like that because, uh, you know, we, we memorize the scripture and it's really a process of transforming our mind so that when things happen, we're ready to face them. We know how to respond because we've been aligning ourselves to the thoughts of God. So memorizing scripture, it's an active way we put our faith in God and not just in our own position. Uh, you could think of it too like learning CPR, right? Lots of people learn CPR, uh, but even if you're a doctor in the ER, you're not using CPR every day, right? But when you need CPR, you sure are glad that you know how to do it. Well, scripture memory, it's a little bit like that. You, you may go for a really long time without seeing tangible benefits, but that doesn't mean you're not preparing yourself for something. It doesn't mean you're not transforming yourself from the inside, making yourself ready for whatever God has next. So if you've never memorized scripture before, let me just give you a couple of things you can, you can think about. First, uh, you know, we've got our summer Bible reading plan. It starts tomorrow. You know, if you've got, uh, if you haven't got a copy of that, you can find one out in the foyer or information stand or something like that. Uh, and there's a lot of scriptures in there. A lot of scriptures you could read. Find one that resonates with you and, and memorize it. Meditate on it. Uh, or another great option, you know, if you were here last Sunday, you heard Glenn Matlock's message from Romans 8. I'd say any of those verses from the end of Romans 8 would be a great passage for us to memorize. Great uh, passage that helps us put our faith in God's process and not just in our position. Uh, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who are being called according to his purpose. Right? That's a, a great passage to help us put our faith in God's process. Memorize that. Meditate on it. Prayer, scripture memory, there are two active ways that we can put our faith in God. Two ways we can really demonstrate our faith. Instead of just responding with anger and bitterness when our position changes, we can be actively transforming ourselves, actively exercising our faith in God so that that when, not if, but when our position changes, when our circumstances change, we can anticipate what God has next with, with joy and excitement instead of just anger and bitterness. So we pursue that active faith. We pursue healthy relationships to prepare us for what God might have next. Uh, several years ago, you know, I was a high school teacher. Before I became a pastor, that's what I did. I taught high school theater, acting, and that kind of thing. And my very first teaching position, I had a really hard time getting a job. Uh, you know, nobody wants to hire a person with no experience, but you can't get experience until somebody hires you, right? I was caught in that, that catch-22. And uh, my family and I, we lived in West Texas, and we really liked where we lived. We wanted to be able to stay there. We wanted to find a teaching job there. We weren't really sure what God had in mind for us, but we knew one thing. We knew that the lease on our apartment was going to end uh, soon, and so we had to do something, either get a job or, or move out of town and try to find a job out of town, right? So I interviewed a couple of times, but I couldn't get hired. And finally, the day came, our lease was up, and we made a tough decision. We moved away to uh, the big city, moved to the Dallas area, and we thought, hey, big city, there's bound to be uh, some more job options there. Well, about four days after we moved, I got a phone call, and it was from one of these jobs, and they were ready to hire me. And I said, well, I've got to be honest with you. I just spent the last bit of money I had to move away, and I, don't, I can't afford to move back. So I couldn't take the job. But I did find a new job. I found a job in the city, and I got a job teaching theater. I was one of like four people in this fine arts department. And, 
And this, this job was a miserable experience. I mean, really from day one, it was miserable. It was miserable for a lot of reasons. It was miserable because I was a new guy, had no authority, no say in how things were going. I was working way, way, way too many hours, never saw my family. Uh, it was really, it was the most awful year that our family has ever experienced. And, um, you know, the other teachers in this department, they had a real lack of integrity, and so I was always getting kind of sucked in and disciplined for these situations that I didn't do, didn't have any control over, things like that. So, so when it came to the end of my contract, the end of that school year, I went looking for a different job. I, I wanted to, anything I could do to change my position. I mean, my marriage depended on it, my sanity depended on it, and the change came, but not in the way that I expected uh, in the process of looking for this new job, I got a call out of the blue, a, a call I never would have anticipated. And the guy on the other end of the phone, he was the superintendent of schools back in the city where we used to live, and he had gone to the same church with us. He knew I was looking for a job, and it just so happened that he had a job opening, a job where I would be the only theater teacher, able to set my own schedule, you know, handle my own affairs, uh, all those sorts of things. And right away, we knew this was was from God. And then he said something kind of funny. He said, yeah, we'll even pay to move you out here, you know. So uh, all this time I'd spent looking for a job on my own, all I could find was this miserable job. And now the person with all the power on the other end of the phone is just handing me this great position without me having to do anything. So naturally I did exactly what you'd expect. I negotiated for a higher salary. (laughs) But I got it. I got it, you know. Now, I would not say that I was completely putting my faith in God through that process, but, but looking back, I can clearly see that God was at work. And if I had trusted Him more from the start, uh, who knows how things might have ended up. I don't know. But I do know firsthand that putting your faith in God's process is such a better way to live. As uh, Jesus was giving His disciples final instructions, He told them, Go and make disciples. He said, I will be with you always. And then he left. You know, it's hard to follow God when you can't see him. But as Christ followers, we have the promise that God is in process, even when we can't see him, even when our position changes. And as we explore the rest of the story of Esther, we're going to see over and over how God is at work behind the scenes, through people, and in ways that you could never anticipate. And as followers of Christ, we can put our faith in God's process, because he's always with us. Uh, Jesus left his disciples, but then he gave them and he gave us the Holy Spirit to be with us, to dwell within us forever. So even when our position changes, we're never outside of God's process. We can put our faith in him. Let's pray. God, we are uh, grateful to you for the work that you're doing in our lives. Uh, We confess that we don't always understand And we can't anticipate the future, but we can know that you're a God who was, a God who is, and a God who is to come. And we want to put our trust in you, pray that you would use the relationships in our lives, pray that you would use our active faith as a way to draw us closer to you, to help us to be putting our faith in you. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.